as we're going to be talking about this week is a voice that came from heaven, and it sounded better than that. So John prepares the way. Jesus begins his ministry by coming to be baptized by John. Memory verse is a new one this week. Let's try to say it together. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So last week we talked about Jesus' stay at the temple as a boy, and we debunked the apparent disobedience of his actions. Remember that it was only disobedience in the eyes of his parents, and he was actually uh, following God's will. On that occasion, Uh, we looked into the principle of imputation, the process by which our sins are credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to our account. And as we work through the lesson this week, we will be using readings by Alexander Scorby. So, speaking of which, the first reading, yeah. Sorry? Virius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and of the region of Traconitis, and Lysanias the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this passage, talking about John the Baptist, it starts with a very specific time reference. The 15 years of Tiberius, Herod's sons, are in power. Remember, Herod the Great, the tyrant king, was alive when Jesus was born. He was reigning then, and he died about four four years, give or take, later. Uh, And his kingdom was divided among his sons. Uh, And so Archelaus started in Judea, Samaria, and Idumea, but he was replaced by Pontius Pilate. Uh, Antipas, also known as Herod, was in Galilee, and Philip was to the north and east of Judea, in a bunch of areas that have names that, trust me, will make no sense to you, so I skipped them. Uh, This is not a fairy tale. This takes place at a specific time, at a specific place. Luke made that very clear. And as I'm reading through it, a little phrase really caught my eye. The word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. The word of the Lord seldom comes to us while we're sitting at our desk working. The word of the Lord comes to people who set aside time to be receptive. John went out to the wilderness, and while he was in the wilderness, having a summer camp experience without the summer camp, the word of the Lord came to him. And he came out of the wilderness, now preaching a baptism of repentance and remission of sins. He encouraged people to repent of their sins and change their ways. What does a prophet always do? In the end, that is the the basement message of every prophet. You're not doing what God wants you to do. Go back, follow follow God the way you're supposed to. And if they repented, they were baptized, 
as a symbol of their repentance. Now, baptism was not a new thing. If you look back at the book of Levi, Leviticus, uh, chapter 15 and 13, and the whole passage in chapter 15 is about this, but when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issue, then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water, and he shall be clean. So under the law, a Jew that became ritually unclean was to wash himself in running water, not just sprinkle it, not pour it on himself, but get in the river and get clean. So baptism was a ritual cleansing. It was familiar to the Jews. Uh, archaeologists, if you go back into uh, Judea, and they, they go back pretty, f- they, they find these pools that are deep. And there's one path into the pool and one path out of the pool. And they would go in and ritually cleanse themselves and go back out. But various types of water under the law were considered appropriate for this. But the most appropriate was always running water, a river. So to the Jews, John baptizing people, taking them out and immersing them in the river, would make sense. It was part of their cultural background. So John ministers up and down the Jordan River, calling people out to him. And each of the gospel writers notes him in a different location. So he's all over the place. Mark says he baptized in Jerusalem and Judea. Matthew put him in the wilderness of Judea. John puts him up at Bethany, not the one near Jerusalem, but the one way up north uh, across Jordan. And then later uh, in Anon near Salem, which is not entirely clear, but it appears to be in southern Judea. So John is going up and down the Jordan River, calling people out, and his ministry is to encourage them to live the life they should, and if they make a commitment to reject their sinful ways and turn toward God, he brings them in, and he baptizes them. And if we look back at Isaiah chapter 40, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. I hope that's not my car. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. John ministered in fulfillment of prophecy. And I don't think that's my car. God did everything he could to give the people the maximum chance to see Christ and to take action. I mean, not only did he provide Christ with the power to do all these miracles, he set a, a, a forerunner, someone who came to prepare the people for Christ an introduction, an opening act, everything God could do to give Israel a chance to repent, to accept Christ and and continue. But they would not. So John's baptism is related to ours, but it's not the same as ours. So Jews came to him to repent of their sins and turn toward God, but that dunking didn't save them or purify them in any way. It was purely symbolic. Similarly, we, after we're saved, in the act of being saved, we've repented of our sins and turned toward Christ for our salvation, and our dunking doesn't save us either. 
It's symbolic in the same way that John's was symbolic. Now, ours also accomplishes adding us to the church. That's a new thing, different from John's baptism, because the church didn't exist at this time of John's baptism. But both are symbols. So the next passage in Luke, please. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. So while the Luke passage tells us little about those who responded to John's message, if we look in some of the other Gospels, like Matthew, we see evidence, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan. Matthew reports a general success of his ministry. The people came out in droves. And John's message to them when they asked him what to do, I think is, is best summarized in actually an Old Testament line. If you, and and it's, I lo, it's a simplified form. I'm not directly quoting from Micah. But Micah 6.8 essentially says, What does the Lord expect of you? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Do justly just means do what is right. And the sad thing is most of us know what's right. We just choose not to do it. But it's more than just doing what's right. Loving mercy is not giving the other guy what he deserves. (laughs) Because we're certainly not getting what we deserve. The Lord has forgiven us. Can we not forgive those around us? I have a trouble with a bad attitude there a lot of times, Uh, particularly if I'm behind the wheel of a car. We all understand that, unfortunately. You know, you just, you don't want to give the other guy a break. But he certainly deserves one. And even if he doesn't deserve one, we are to be Christ-like and give him a break anyway. And then finally, walk humbly. It's too easy for somebody who knows they're living the life they should be, for those of us who can manage that, and who feel good about how they're treating their fellow men to get really arrogant. And they say, well, I'm so much better than he is. And that's not what God's looking for. And between these three, and to me, this is one of the best summations of God's expectations to us. Uh, And I invite you to look up that verse for yourself and see what you think. But it's beautifully expressed in just six words. And this is what John tells the people. Do what God expects you to do. Now, the religious leaders came out to see what was going on. Because they hear about all these people flocking to this man in the wilderness. 
And they've got to investigate because this is a threat to their power base. They hold the ways to God. How dare this unwashed man out in the wilderness preach to these people? God's been silent for 400 years. Surely he's still silent. And we have the way to heaven. You've got to come to us. They came out and John had harsh words for them. He said, do not rely on your heritage. You are smug in that you are part of the chosen people. You're descendants of Abraham. You get into heaven for free. He says, uh, no. Your heritage matters not at all. If God wanted to, he could turn these rocks into sons of Abraham. Your heritage won't save you. He says, bring forth fruits worthy, that is, in line with, in accordance with, repentance. Turn your life around. And to people in power, whether they were soldiers or the tax collectors, his message is simple. Don't take advantage of your power over others. Tax collectors would overcharge people, pocket the difference. Soldiers would beat people up because it was Tuesday. They would take bribes to not beat people up because it was Tuesday. And he says, don't abuse your power. And boy, is that, that, is, is that ever a lesson that we need to hear? Because you put a small, give a small man a little bit of power and you see how ugly things go. So in John, we see a passage where those religious leaders, having been dressed down by this unwashed man in the wilderness, and the followers who flock to John, they say, who are you? Because there is a certain expectation. The people are waiting for certain things to come. They've been promised a Messiah. They've been promised a return of Elijah. They've been promised, way back by Moses, a prophet. And they asked John, and he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, well, who then are you? Art thou Elias, Elijah? And he said, no, he saith, I am not. Art thou the prophet, the one Moses had promised? And he answered, no. Then say they unto him, who art thou, that we may have given answer to them who sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? So the people asked him who he was, and he made it clear that he was not Elijah, nor the promised prophet of Moses, and especially not Christ. Now, he didn't lie. He was not Elijah. The people had come to expect that Elijah himself would come back uh, and preach. Now, he came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Very similar ministry. Working out in the uh, wilderness, yelling at the kings. Didn't care who they were. But he wasn't Elijah himself. He, obviously, he was John. And he was a man of God who served God throughout his entire ministry. This one you have, right, guys? And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will throughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. 
Do you guys understand the symbolism in verse 17? He's holding a fan. That doesn't seem like a very threatening item, does it? And we're not talking... We're talking a fan like it's sometimes sitting in the pew. You know, just a... And you hold it in your hand and you flap it. Why is a fan threatening? Ooh, look out. I've got a fan. But I think the example here is specifically around wheat. So, uh, farmers, I know we got an ex-farmer over there. Farmers, anybody know anything about wheat production? Big, big combines, right? They ran the combines through Israel? No combines. Wheat or barley or any of the grasses, you grow them, yeah, and the, the seeds are on the, uh, the stalk, right? Blade of uh, grass-looking stuff. You've seen the wheat berries. There's all the pictures you see about the healthy food. But there's a lot more there than the wheat berries. So how do you get the wheat berries off the stalk into the bowl so you can grind it? Do you just go out there and pick each berry off one at a time? Oh, that would be horrible. Oh, you can't fan it off. That actually doesn't work. Yeah, you beat the snot out of it. You take the wheat and a big old stick, and they used a winnowing floor, and they would just beat So once you dry it out, you mechanically beat it, and it separates the berries from the stalk and everything else. But in the process of beating it, you powder everything else. It just turns into little fines. And then you take a fan, and you fan it away, the stuff you don't want, which is called chaff. Or you take a shovel, when in a windy day, and you throw it up in the air, and the wheat berries fall, and the chaff blows away. So it's the separation of that which is good from that which is useless. And the symbolism, if, if God's got a, hand in it, a fan in his hand, it's pretty clear what he's going to be doing. He's winnowing, separating the wheat from the chaff. And in this example, they're taking the rather extreme approach of burning the chaff in the fire. Typically, you just let it scatter around, and you don't worry about it. You let it blow into your neighbor's yard, good enough. But this winnowing, So John confessed that he was only a forerunner, that one much greater than he was coming after him, and he was completely unworthy by comparison with that coming person. And that is something I'm sure the people were surprised to hear because everybody was elevating John. Here's this great man of God, the first person speaking with the words of God in 400 years, and he says, I'm nothing. You ain't seen nothing yet. Guess what's coming? So he redirected their attention to Christ. And that was his job. He wasn't just denying their expectations, but redirecting to the main event. One who would baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And John warns of coming judgment. And for those Jews, judgment was coming. After they rejected Christ in AD 70, Jerusalem was smashed flat by the Romans, who were very good at smashing things flat. In Luke, now moving on a little, jumping ahead into the future for the moment, still focusing on John, we'll come back to this moment in time, but just jumping forward to the future for a second. Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, that is John, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. So John, remaining faithful, 
after introducing Jesus, he criticized Herod Antipater for marrying his brother's wife. And for all the evil that he did and for that his father did. And so he was imprisoned and later beheaded. So John remained faithful even after he'd performed his primary job of introducing Christ. He was still preaching. He was still prophesying. I think it might have been uh, easy for some of us. Well, you know, I've done my job. I'm going to go kick back by the fire. He kept it up. So then in Matthew, we're going to focus on Jesus' baptism when he came to John. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus, to start his ministry, comes down from his home in Nazareth, and he finds John. The Bible doesn't tell us where along Jordan was John was at the time. It doesn't really matter. A lot of people think he was up on the north side, and Jesus didn't have that far to come. As Jesus comes to be baptized by John, there are three people who knows who Jesus really is. God, Jesus, and John. Nobody else has a clue. Picture the scene for a moment. There's an entire band of pilgrims on the edge of the Jordan River. And John had been preaching to them, and he calls for baptism much as we'll call people down in the, uh, to the altar here after a sermon. And the people come in to be baptized. And Jesus steps in among the people. And I'm sure John is just doing his daily work, and he looks up at the next baptismal candidate and goes, uh, you I know, and I got no business baptizing you. He sees face to face the man I'm sure he had met before in his life. He was a cousin. Can't prove it by the Bible. You take your opinion. He either saw him for the first time and recognized him or he'd seen him before. But he knows who Christ is. He knows who he's preparing the way for. And John says, I can't baptize you. It's, it's not appropriate. I'd feel wrong. John believed Christ should be baptizing him because John knew that Christ was the sinless Messiah. Time, okay. But Jesus tells John that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So let's, let's unpack that for a moment. Jesus was sinless, right? Agreed? So Jesus had no need to repent, right? So Jesus had no need to change his life. So he couldn't have changed his life in response to John's preaching. So it doesn't make any sense for him to receive the baptism of John, at least on the surface. And this is where John was coming from. He goes, this doesn't make any sense. What are you declaring? Why are you here? You're so much better than me. You should be baptizing me. So 
What did Jesus accomplish by being baptized by John? Well, first of all, and really least important, he put a stamp of approval on John's ministry. And as Jesus becomes more and more well-known, people remember, hey, you know, he was baptized by John. John's baptism really was a thing. But that's not the important thing. What's important is Jesus identified himself with sinners. Christ's life was to be parallel to ours, but a paragon of what life we should be able to lead if it wasn't for our sin nature. Sure, Christ is God. Christ is also human. And in baptism with John, he's identified with all these sinners. Does that make sense? Also, arguably, he's baptized into the church that's coming. He's a member of our church. He doesn't appear on the secretary's rolls, but if he's the head of the church, he must also be a member of the church. So at some point, to be a member of the church, he'd have to be baptized. And oh, look, he got baptized. On coming out of the water, the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, flutter, flutter, land. And a voice from heaven expressed his approval. Am I getting ahead of myself? No, sorry. We did cover that. Excuse me, brain dead. The Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, while a voice from heaven expressed his approval. His approval. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So the Holy Spirit came to Jesus at this time and gave him that power. We talked about previously, um, Christ emptied himself during the incarnation. He set aside many of his godly attributes. Well, those just didn't seep back in like a flood in the basement. It came upon him at this moment as the Holy Spirit empowers him. Because he had left that nature behind, so in the same way that a prophet would be empowered by the Holy Spirit, Christ, who was a prophet, was empowered by the Holy Spirit, to a greater degree. Um, But that power came upon him to enable him to perform his ministry. And just imagine the reaction from the Father's approval. The voice from heaven on the pilgrims there with John. Uh, I don't think it surprised John too much, <laughs> although I think a voice from heaven would have, would have surprised anybody. Um, what an introduction for Christ, Amen. for these people that were there. And you know, I'm sure all of those people went home and never mentioned it to anybody, right? I, obviously, I joke. Word would have spread. I went out to see John and to hear him preach and to be convicted. And John preached. And then the one he's been saying would would be coming came and John said, Messiah, right there. And it wasn't just John. God spoke to us. 400 years of silence Okay, but when's the last time God audibly spoke to the people? 
Was it Sinai? Did he do it any time since, brother? Not audibly, no. no. Not audibly. He, he appeared as a Shekinah glory. Sure, absolutely. But uh, the voice of God heard for the first time since Mount Sinai. Just think about that for a moment if you can put yourself in a Jewish mindset. God not only broke 400 years of silence, he broke 1,500 years of silence? Somewhere in that neighborhood? Big day. Everybody who was there, we don't know how many, is going to tell everybody they know. Things have changed. Somebody's here. God is acting in our time, and what a thing that is. This is also the single clearest demonstration of the Trinity in the Bible. Our God, three persons in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And anyone who was there at that day got to see and or hear all three at the same time. And this is unique in the Bible. And it's God's gift to us that it was recorded. This is a direct example. Not just an illustration, but an... I don't know what word I can use. A demonstration. Thank you, Eric. um, Of a key biblical doctrine. In the clearest way possible. It's really hard to argue against the Trinity without ignoring this passage. Because it's right there. There's God the Father speaking from heaven wasn't somebody else acting as a ventriloquist. It was God the Father. Here's the Holy Ghost coming down from heaven, alighting on Christ. It wasn't a random bird that had nothing better to do than land on someone's shoulders. Has anyone ever had a bird just land on their shoulder at random? I've been attacked by birds. They've bounced off my head. Much less pleasant. Um, And there's Jesus. Three in one, right there. So, I'm going to end the lesson part right there. And now the questions.